I need you to imagine something. I need you to put yourself into the story. Imagine that you're having an incredibly busy week. Now, for some of you, this will not be hard to imagine because this is what your life is like. Or at least if you look back not that far ago, this is what your life used to be like. And you're at work, and no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you redeem the day, there's just too much to do in your eight hours, in your nine hours, in your 10 hours. And so you get to that point in time where the workday is supposed to end. All your coworkers, well, they're all going home, but you still have so much to do. So you take your work, you stick it into your briefcase, you put it into your backpack because you want to go home. And then you bring your laptop with you, get into your car and you drive home. And then of course your kids run to you, your wife uh, runs to you and says, hi, so great to see you. And you say, it's great to see you, but I'm really, really busy. And I just need, just for tonight, I, I just need you to leave me alone, right? So I can focus on my work and I'll make it up to you, I promise, later on. And so you go into the dining room, you take over the dining room table, you lay out your papers, you lay out your computer, and you go to work just like you said. And you are diligently trying to knock this off your list so you can spend some time doing the things that you like. And in the middle of your busyness, you feel that vibration on your watch. And you hear your phone ringing in the bedroom where it's charging, and you know someone is calling you. And you just want to hit the ignore button, but when you look down, you see it's not just somebody calling you, it's your mom. Yes, that mom, who you forgot last Sunday on Mother's Day to call. And now she's calling you, and you are panicked because you're thinking she's going to yell and scream at you and tell you what a bad son you are. So you make your way over to the phone quickly, and you have this apology ready. But before you can even squeak out the words, hello, she says, I have some great news. And you say, Mom, what's the great news? Well, we're coming to visit. You say, Mom, that sounds like great news. Could you let me know when you're going to visit so we can clear out our schedule and make sure everything is ready for you so we can have a great visit? And she says, that's the best part about this news. We are already on our way, and we will see you in a little bit. So you say goodbye, you hang up the phone, and now you're panicking because she's not the only woman in your life, is she? You love your mom, but you love your spouse. And it's not that they don't have a good relationship. It's that your house, well, it's a mess because you're not the only one who's been busy, right? Your wife has been busy. And so collectively you have not mowed the lawn, cleaned the house. There's toothpaste on the mirror. The dishes are in the sink. There's toys everywhere. And you cannot imagine exposing your mom to this house right now. And so after you have a quick conversation, you say, well, she's coming. We just got to take care of it. You both turn into Martha Stewart. Now, not the Martha Stewart who went to jail, but the one who cleans homes really well, okay? Just to be clear. And you start cleaning up all the nooks and crannies of your place, right? You're, you're vacuuming and, and you're mopping and you're shampooing and you're dusting and you're wiping the mirrors. And just about the time when you're going to unplug the vacuum to say it's all done and breathe that sigh of relief, you hear the doorbell ring and your mom is there. Isn't it funny how motivated we get to clean our house when a visitor is coming over? We could not imagine letting someone into our home if it was not spotless. It doesn't matter who it is. It can be your mom or it can be a stranger off the street. If we know a visitor is coming, we want to make sure that we always put our best foot forward. 
You see, it's amazing what a little accountability can do. And that's why this last Sunday when it was Mother's Day and we gave away the free cleaning to one lucky mom at each and every one of our services, my wife really wanted to win. She really wanted to win. So when she didn't, this is what I did. I took out my phone and I called my mom, but I didn't really call my mom. I just pretended I called my mom. And I said, you're not going to believe this, Ashley. My mom is coming. She's one hour away. Our house has never been cleaned faster and better than in that one hour. Now, I'm just kidding. I didn't actually do that because I had a lot of angry looks at me right now. I'll keep that one in my back pocket though, right? If it gets too bad, I might just pull that one out. No, I didn't do that. But it's amazing what we'll do, isn't it? When someone is coming, it's amazing what we'll do when there's a little bit of accountability in our life. Today, as we dig into 1 Corinthians, we're going to see this is true. We're going to see that Paul and God wants to put a healthy accountability into our life. This is what Paul says. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are beneficial. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. So as we make our way into 1 Corinthians, we're actually stepping into the middle of a conversation between the Apostle Paul and this church that he's planted in, in the city of Corinth. But this is where he's running into some problems with this church. You see, he's gone off on a missionary journey. And he's going to start new churches and encourage other churches. And while he was gone, this church had bought into a lie. What was the lie they bought into? Well, they bought into this mantra that all things are lawful for me. All things are lawful for me. You see, in the culture where, where Paul planted this church, this was the mantra of the culture. And like any culture where a church is planted, very often if people say it long enough or if they say it loud enough, it permeates into our lives, right? We start believing it, we start owning it. And before long, even believers, we begin to believe and own these things and then they make their way into the church. And this is exactly what happened with this church. They had heard this mantra, all things are lawful, and they started internalizing it and then it made its way into the church. Now, what did the statement mean? It actually didn't mean what it sounds like it means, which I can do whatever I want, right? If, if I want to beat you up, I can. If I want to steal from you, I can. If I want to deceive you, I can. That's, that not, that's not actually what the statement is saying. But what they believed in this culture was that they could do anything they wanted as long as it did not harm somebody else, right? They could do whatever they wanted as long as it did not affect someone else negatively. So they felt if they had enough wisdom and discernment, they would know places where they could do whatever they want to do. And by that, all things would be lawful to them. This is what they were believing, and this is what they were owning. And for Paul, he knew this was making an unhealthy culture. But you can see why they might think this, right? Because I think even in America, we have some of this philosophy, right? We can do whatever we want as long as we don't harm somebody else which of course takes a lot of discernment because now we are deciding what is going to harm somebody or what's not going to harm somebody. And we kind of live in this space as Americans. Now add to this the fact that when Paul planted this church, what did he plant this church on? Well, he planted this church on the good news of Jesus Christ, which is what? Jesus came to die for our sins to set us free from sin. 
And so you can see where they would take this truth about Jesus and this mantra and start bleeding them together and, and blending them together. And you can see how it'd make all sorts of problems. Because as Christians, we know that this isn't true about our lives. Even though we're set free from sin, it doesn't mean that we just do whatever we want. Right? We know this is true because we know that if we did this, it would create a very unhealthy culture. And this is why Paul is speaking into this. In fact, as, as Lutherans, we have a great way of understanding this very clearly because we know, we know that once we are freed from sin, we are freed from sin. And we don't have to keep working and trying and earning God's favor, but we, we know that the law is beneficial. And that's why we have something called the second use of the law and, and the third use of the law. Now, just really simply, I don't, I don't want to bore you with this, but the second use of the law is something you're very familiar with. You read through scripture, you read about a sin, and you realize, I have this sin in my life. And when you realize that you are sinful, you realize you are imperfect. And when you are imperfect, you realize you cannot go to the perfect place with the perfect one, Jesus Christ. And so you realize you are a sinner in need of a savior. That's the second use of the law, to point us to the fact that we are flawed, and we need somebody who's not flawed to help us. That's Jesus Christ. Now, once we hold on to Christ's promises and once we are part of his family, well, then what do we do with this law? Do we just throw it to the side? Do we just do whatever we do? No, it comes back to us as the third use of the law, which means now it's a gift to us. It doesn't mean that we have to keep trying and, and working and now we have to work by effort because Christ has started his part, but now it's our part. No, it's like a gift given to us, like a good father says, hey, this is the best way to navigate life. If you follow my ways, you will experience health. And this is what Paul wants these, this church, and this is what Paul wants us to understand. And so he continues. Food is meant for the stomach and stomach for the food. And God will destroy both one and the other. Now, I love this part of Paul's writing because it shows the genius of Paul. See, Paul already knew how we function as people, right? When, when we are challenged about something that we believe in, something that we own, and something that we've internalized, well, what do we do? We try to justify our actions, right? We, we set up a rebuttal. And so Paul takes a preemptive strike on this church because he knows that they know some of the good news of Jesus. They know the words of Jesus because he taught them the words of Jesus. And so he says, I know what you're going to say. You're going to quote Jesus that food is for the stomach and stomach is for food. He knew they were going to say this, but he also knew what they would be thinking when they said this, which is the body, well, it's temporary. The body is temporary and someday it's going to go away. So, so who cares about the body? And they had devalued the body. They had elevated their soul, but they had devalued the body. And that's why Paul says this. The body is meant not for fornication, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. You see, while they were devaluing the body, Paul elevated the value of our human body. Now, why does he do this? Because Paul knew that our body is the primary vehicle in which God uses to bring his good news to people. Right, our body is the vehicle that travels around and serves people and shares the good news with people and loves people. 
And we actually see this in Christ because what does Jesus do? Jesus comes to the earth, God in flesh, God incarnate. He becomes man. He puts on the vehicle. He teaches, he preaches, he does miracles. He does all of these things. Then he goes to the cross and he dies for our sins and then he rises again. Jesus literally put on the vehicle to do his work and in the same way, he has given us our bodies to do his work. And that's why Paul says this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? See, what Paul is doing here is he's blending these two things together. He wants us to understand this truth that Christ is a part of our body. In fact, that gives it its most important value. Christ is with us. And when we hear these words, they are both comforting and terrifying, aren't they? Because Christ is with you all the time. But Christ is with you all the time. You see how as much comfort as it brings, it also scares us when we actually feel the gravity of what Paul is saying to us and what God is saying to us. Well, he continues, should I therefore take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that whoever is united to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is said, the two shall become one flesh. Now, I, I don't know about you, but even having to say these words in church makes me very uncomfortable. Right? I have this like little internal monologue that says, we don't have these conversations in church. But think about this. Paul is not only writing this to a church, but they're gathering together as a family of faith, a church, and they're reading these words. Now, why would Paul use such graphic language? One, because he's trying to get their attention. I bet you it got your attention too when these words popped up on the screen and when I said them out loud, didn't they? He's trying to get their attention because he has a better way for them. But he also knows this. Because they had bought into this mantra and, and, and blended their faith with it, that more than likely there was a number of them who were actually living their life this way. Because what was their mantra? Right, as long as it doesn't harm somebody, or the other person is fine with what I'm doing, well, then it's okay. Which means it was very likely in this culture and in this church that people were actually behaving this way. Because they were fine with it, I'm fine with it, it's just a body, it doesn't matter, it's gonna go away, and so it didn't matter. And Paul, Paul did not want this in their life. And so he responds with these words. But anyone united to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Once again, this is now the second time he said this in a different way, that Christ is living with you, right? These are one in the same, which is both, once again, comforting and terrifying. It means that Christ will be with you during all of your dark days, but Christ will be with you during all of your dark choices as well which means when you live out your life, even when no one can see, even when you shut off the lights, even when you pay with cash, even when you clear your web browser, Jesus is with you wherever you go. Well, Paul moves on. Shun fornication. Every sin that a person commits is outside the body, but the fornicator sins against the body itself. 
Now you can hear Paul's passion, right? Do not behave this way because if you behave this way, you destroy your body. Now, oftentimes when we think of sin, we don't think of it that way, do we? We think, well, our sin, it breaks our relationship with God, and, and, and oftentimes it breaks our relationship with one another, right? And this is how we think of sin, right? If I apologize to God and I apologize to the person I've offended, then we're in good shape. But Paul is saying there is some sin that actually goes beyond our relationship with God and our relationship with one another. There's some sin that actually damages the vehicle that God has given us to proclaim his message to the world. There are some sins that are self-destructive. This past week, I was online looking at the CDC website. Maybe some of you guys were doing this too. And I stumbled upon this stat. And what it said was that 40% of all people who die in the United States on an annual basis, 40% of them die because of preventable diseases. 40% of people, which is 900,000 people a year in the United States, die because of their personal choices. They drank too much, they ate too much, maybe they smoked too much, whatever it was, they made a choice, a conscious choice, and because of that, they destroyed their body and they died prematurely. That's 40% of all people in the United States, 900,000 people. Now, if you take that number and you put in this little number that's important, 65% of these people were followers of Jesus Christ. 65% of the 900,000 were believers in Jesus Christ. They were Christians, which means almost 600,000 people who are called to be missionaries, right, where God has placed them, and the people around them and their families died prematurely, not because they were martyred, not because they were persecuted, but because they did not respect the vehicle that God had given them. And so they ended their mission before their time was supposed to be. Well, Paul says this, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God? and that you are not your own? Once again, Paul, now for the third time, what does he say? God lives in you. The Holy Spirit resides within you. In fact, he uses this word that's so powerful. He says, the Holy Spirit is templing among you. You are the temple. Now, think about the gravity of that. Now, I know we aren't living in the Old Testament or even during Christ's time, so it's hard to understand. But this is the place where God came and met man. This is the place where people came to have their sins forgiven, to make their relationship right with God. And, and what does Paul say here? You are this place. Your body, your physical body, your, your vehicle, this is the place where people have the opportunity to meet Jesus, to hear that their sins can be forgiven, to let them know that they are, there is a better way. And once again, this is both the best news you've ever heard and the most terrifying news you've ever heard. But because of this news, this is why Paul closes with this. For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Now, as we close out our time together, as we think about these words, you might be thinking, well, this isn't what I signed on for. 
right? This is what I, isn't what I wanted, right? The deal was very simple. I believe in Jesus. I get baptized. I go to church on Easter and Christmas. I take communion. And if I do these things, then I get that, right? Then I get to go to heaven. Well, that's kind of part of it, but there's more. It's not even in the fine print. It's not like there's an asterisk after that. And then you look with your magnifying glass and you see, oh no, there's more. No. As people who get to go to the kingdom of of God someday as believers and part of his family, we understand that there is a king and that king is Jesus and he is the ruler of our life. The good news is he's the ruler of our life, which means he wants the best for us because he is also not only the ruler, but our loving father who bought our bodies and bought our lives so we can do something better. So the doorbell rings. Your mom walks in. And of course, the house is perfectly clean because you could never imagine letting someone into your house, especially your mom, when your house is not clean. But it's not just your mom, is it? Right, if you have any visitor, even if you don't even like them and they're going to come to your house, you clean your house, at least those parts they're going to walk through. So they have a good experience and so they they think the best of you. Even when your dad calls you and says, my third cousin Bob is going to swing through the Sock Valley. He's wondering if he could come over and you're thinking, I have no idea who this guy is. I've never met him before. You clean and you lay out the red carpet because you want them to have a good experience. This is what we all do. But have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought about the implications of our behavior in this way? That when a visitor comes over, we lay out the red carpet, we do everything, we make sure it is perfect and pristine. Have you ever thought about what that says to the people that we care the most about who live with us each and every day? I wonder in the same way if this is how Christ feels. Because when we go out in public, when we go to church, when when people can see us, right, we put on our good face because we want people to think the best of us and, and see us in the best light. But what about the person who is with us all the time? What about the Holy Spirit that temples within us, right? What about Jesus that sees absolutely everything? You see, this is both comforting and terrifying, isn't it? but it truly is comforting. Because even Christ who lives within us, when he sees our unhealth, his goal is not to make us feel bad or to destroy us because of it, it's to give us a better way, a healthy way. And over these next uh, number of weeks, we're gonna explore all the ways that Christ has a better path for us. So I'm excited to continue this conversation with you next week and the week after and the week after because there's only one way to true health and it's through Jesus Christ who has bought you with a price and he has something so much better for you.